Welcome to 340B Insight from 340B Health. Hello from Washington, D.C., and welcome back to 340B Insight, the podcast about the 340B drug pricing program. I'm David Glendinning with 340B Health. The nation's response to the novel coronavirus 2019 pandemic has focused our attention on the frontline healthcare providers who are spearheading that response. Our guest today is a leader with a 340B hospital system that was one of the first to deal with a COVID-19 outbreak. That experience can illuminate what many other safety net hospitals and health systems throughout the country have had to do to prepare. But before we go to that interview, let's take a minute to talk about the latest news on 340B. Senator Ben Sass, a Republican from Nebraska, recently introduced legislation aimed at aiding rural hospitals during the public health emergency. 340B figures prominently in that legislation. It would protect disproportionate share hospitals from losing 340B eligibility because of pandemic-related shifts in their payer mix. In addition, hospitals that normally are prohibited from using a group purchasing organization to buy 340B drugs would be permitted to do so, to avoid shortages of needed medications. 340B advocates are urging lawmakers to consider the SAS language as they work on the next version of COVID-19 legislation. Meanwhile, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services has concluded its controversial survey of 340B hospitals' drug acquisition costs. The agency has indicated it intends to set future Medicare payment rates to many 340B hospitals at or close to those acquisition costs. That would perpetuate the deep payment cuts to those hospitals into 2021. The first inkling of that policy likely will come in July. You can find additional resources on these developments in the show notes for this episode. Today's feature interview is with Mike Bonk. Mike is manager of pharmaceutical services at CHI Franciscan Health in Tacoma, Washington, which is part of Common Spirit Health. He's been with that health system for more than three decades and has a wide variety of responsibilities there, including supporting the 340B programs at CHI Franciscan's four dish hospitals, its rural referral center, and its critical access hospital. He also is finishing his term as a member of the board of directors here at 340B Health. The Seattle-Tacoma area was one of the first parts of the country to deal with cases of COVID-19. Mike's system faced a variety of challenges, including mobilizing to open COVID-19-specific units and ensuring that those facilities had appropriate levels of staffing, ventilators, and other crucial medical supplies. Our own Miles Goldman spoke with Mike about how CHI Franciscan rose to the challenge. Here's what he had to say. Hi, I'm Miles Goldman from 340B Health. I'm joined by Mike Bonk. Mike, thank you for making time to speak with us. Welcome to 340B Insight. Thank you, Miles, for the opportunity to join. We're going to be talking today about the COVID-19 pandemic and how it's been impacting your hospitals. The Seattle-Tacoma area was one of the first in the United States to experience an outbreak of COVID-19 cases. Can you tell us what your system experienced? The first Washington state cases began with the patient up in uh, Everett at Providence in Everett. He was the first actually patient in the U.S. And then it started expanding and especially 
as the uh, issue with the nursing home up north of Seattle. We even received some of those patients in the long run because of the Seattle area and north, north of Seattle being overwhelmed with cases. We first experienced a significant surge in early March to April, and it was a very busy time because we didn't know quite what to expect. And we immediately set up individual hospital and system command centers. We basically met as often as two to three times a day, seven days a week, looking at everything related to emergency preparedness across the organization, how each hospital could support one another, changes that we need to make related to PPE supplies, medication supplies. Uh, it was a very intense time. And also in terms of trying to potentially get involved in studies that were ongoing since so little was known at that time and still is known about adequate treatment of COVID-19. But first, we were very short with PPE supplies, although that uh, resolved over time. But it was a lot of decisions had to be made early on in terms of conservation of PPE to ensure both our employees, our physicians, our staff members uh, had adequate protection in treating patients and that patients were uh, safe also. In the state of Washington, originally it was only the state lab that was doing testing and that's about 60 miles away from where we're at. And so the turnaround was very lengthy. It took up to four days or more to get test results. Then uh, University of Washington in their virology lab uh, started doing testing. So that helped to take some of the relief off. And now, of course, there are more rapid testings that we're able to do locally within our hospital labs that have really helped that process and turn some of those patients around quicker. And what was it like personally for you during those first few weeks? I imagine a lot of long days. Oh, yeah. I tend to work long days anyway, but it made them a little bit longer. And I think even with the, the weekend calls and just a lot of issues, there were a number of different drugs that we discussed and had to make decisions internally with our physician groups within the region and uh, pharmacy groups and other leaders on what medications we were going to support for use and follow up for patients. We ended up becoming involved in, uh, in uh, two of the remdesivir trials through Gilead. We're still involved, although they may be coming to an ending soon. So it was very busy in terms of that because things were basically changing, not really on a minute to minute, but certainly on a day-to-day -day basis, week-to-week -week basis, especially early on with some of the information that was getting published out of China and some out of Europe because they were a little bit ahead of the U.S. in terms of number of cases and some of the medications that had been used for patients. The healthcare professionals uh, caring for patients with COVID-19 are, of course, true heroes to all of us. And it must be taking a tremendous toll on uh, all the men and women at, at your hospitals, this pandemic. Can you share with us how your colleagues are coping? Well, there's a lot of support from a lot of our teams and especially our pastoral uh, care team in terms of support for employees and, and trying to take some downtime and that sort of thing. Certainly, it's very challenging with the dangers associated with treatment and with direct care in ICU, ED, or COVID units. Wearing appropriate PEE is very essential. We're blessed that no one within our pharmacy group has actually turned positive with over 
300 FTEs regionally within all of our facilities. But certainly there's a lot of family concerns. We've seen many employees uh, in different disciplines, as we've seen across the country, will tend to socially isolate themselves even when they come home. Some are not living, they might live, uh, uh, you know, live in the garage during the time, especially if they've become positive or have symptoms. So there is a lot of stress on families. And of course, in many cases, it's been very difficult because of visiting rules where someone may only be able to, a patient uh, near death may only be able to talk to someone over the phone as opposed to in person, or there may be only able to be one person there at time of death. So that's, I think, been very challenging both to our staff and to our and to patients and their family members for sure. With all that has happened, is there a patient story that stands out to you that demonstrates, you know, the successes and the challenges that uh, your health system has faced? Well, I think one interesting one, we had an employee actually who was uh, came down with, with COVID-19 and she and her husband both did. They were both hospitalized. He had a milder case and was discharged within a few days. She had a more severe case, was not actually, uh, had not actually progressed to being on a ventilator, but was actually one of our first patients enrolled in the remdesivir trial. And after about 14 days, uh, was able to be discharged from the hospital and both of them are recovering at home. So it was ver a, a very nice uh, success story. We've seen examples of hospitals, you know, playing celebratory songs as they as they discharge. Has CHI Franciscan uh, come up with a celebratory song? We do. Here comes the sun. So <laughs> it is nice. We, we actually do something at our birth of a baby every time, but actually uh, decided to do Here Comes the Sun as a you know, as a positive emblematic song for that person's recovery and being able to leave the hospital and go home. That's definitely a great song. Can you talk a little bit more about shortages uh, in terms of drugs and or in terms of equipment? Early on in terms of medications, there were some fears that even uh, inhaler products that are used for bronchodilation we're going to be short. So unfortunately, sometimes that leads to trying to purchase extra supply that could cause a shortage in and of itself. But we did do a, a bit of that, not to create a shortage, but to provide enough inhalers for support. There have been shortage of neuromuscular blockers that are often used on ventilated patients uh, if they have severe cases and need uh, muscle blockade. Uh, one of those drugs is cisatricurium, was especially in short supply. We don't tend to use a lot of it, but we're able to obtain some when we needed. But it was, again, touch and go a number of times. And then there's just been a whole plethora of other drugs that have been in short supply, somewhat due to COVID-19. It's been a long-standing problem in the United States with drug shortages, probably for the last three to five years plus this just uh, COVID-19 just exacerbated that problem. We're very lucky because we have a system of hospitals locally so we can share in between our hospitals and even potentially across the United States if needed with our larger system. Are there best practices that you found to you know, help at least somewhat address these drug shortages? Well, it's all about working closely with your medical staff and having contingencies in place. 
whether through our formal P&T committees or through leadership where we'll get together quickly and make a determination of what shortage we may be facing and determine alternatives that we're going to use. And that's really, I think all systems tend to try to do that, but we, we think we're pretty good at it. And uh, we have even a, a list of drugs that we deem uh, necessary for COVID-19. We do an inventory once a week and share that across the region, both with practitioners, nursing staff and pharmacy staff. And then if anything else comes up in between, we go straight to those leaders to let them know what we're going to have to do uh, in order to facilitate care if we have an acute shortage of a product. And most often there are alternatives that can be used. One might be a little bit easier to use than another, but we will share that and then get that information spread out as quickly as possible, make changes in our electronic health record if need be, and uh, move on with those changes. Are there other lessons that you can share with hospitals who might be on a different place on the curve? Well, I think it's all about planning, making sure that everyone is in sync together in terms of medication supplies, what you're going to use from a pharmacy perspective, making sure that you have appropriate amount of PPE and other just in general supplies that are needed for treatment and making sure that you're your staffs are ready and you have good communication lines throughout your organization. It's all about communication. Many hospitals are having to deal with significant financial losses from having to defer elective procedures for a while. Can you share with us how the pandemic is affecting finances for your hospitals? I will tell you from my discussions, not only internally, but within our organization as a whole and within other hospitals within the region, everyone is hurting from COVID-19 because when you think about it, you really shut things down in early to mid-March. And so we're two months into that. And March was not a good month for any hospitals that I'm aware of. April was the worst and May probably will not be much better because of course you may start doing elective surgeries again, but you're not gonna get paid for those until probably into June. So it's been very, very challenging. There has been stimulus money that uh, from the CARES Act that has come out and been distributed to hospitals, but far from meeting their needs with, with those stimulus funds thus far. You oversee the 340B program as it uh, affects uh, CHI Franciscan hospitals. How has 340B been helpful to you during this period? I would say, the losses would be much worse without it. It's a blessing to have 340B. It's helped and the savings really have helped us over the years to provide care to extended populations and to the poor and underserved, which we're dedicated to in our communities. But without that during this time, it would have been uh, a lot worse than it is. It's, it, it would have just intensified our, our financial losses within the region. And have the changes made by the government, by HRSA to provide flexibility to 340B providers been helpful? Yes, I think uh, having some of those guidelines loosened up or a little more flexible during this challenging time has been very helpful. I know we've done more telemedicine within our facilities. I know many other hospitals are doing that. The majority of our 
medical groups visits during this time have turned into telemedicine visits. And without that, it would be very, very difficult to be caring for patients. I think we're going to see telemedicine here to stay in a in a lot higher fashion than what we've probably had in the past. And hopefully HRSA and, and all CMS, HRSA, et cetera, will not just make some of these changes temporary, but realize the importance of making them long-term for the better overall care of our patient populations and potentially expanding the potential for care with certain populations also. When you think about the recovery phase, do you also look at it from a perspective of patients who have chronic diseases that normally see? Are you concerned about what you know their health status will be as they return to seeing you? I am in some cases because there may be people who have avoided either even the telemedicine visits or who are waiting. I mean, we definitely have large number of people who are unemployed across the U.S. Uh, as we know, it's over 30, I think it's over 30 million. Uh, and we do in this state, it's about 20% of our population. And it's really going to depend too then on how many of those who are unemployed actually do get back and are employed and have insurance coverage. Is there still going to be fear of, I think, as as states start to loosen up and provide uh, the ability for economy to start up again, I think a lot is un- unknown yet whether we're going to see exacerbations of COVID. Well, thank you, Mike, for taking the time to speak with us today. Uh, we wish you uh, well, too, as, as well as your hospitals and the Seattle-Tacoma region uh, as it continues moving through the recovery process. Thank you, Miles. It's been a pleasure taking part today. I appreciated the invitation and the ability to uh, share our experience. Our thanks again to Mike Bonk from CHI Franciscan for his instructive and inspiring story. I don't think I'll ever listen to Here Comes the Sun without thinking of the heroic work Mike described. In our next episode of our podcast, we will be speaking with a 340B hospital in a different part of the country that faced and met its own challenges as COVID-19 spread from metropolitan centers to more rural communities. If you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe to 340B Insight on your favorite podcast player so you can hear that story right when it comes out. And as you are planning your weeks ahead, please register for the 340B Coalition Virtual Summer Conference. This virtual conference will feature more than 50 live and on-demand sessions, three pre-conference workshops, and multiple networking opportunities. It is the best way for you to keep pace with the latest developments in the 340B world. Sessions will include crucial updates on how COVID-19 is affecting operations and compliance issues. You can learn more about the 340B Coalition Virtual Summer Conference at 340bsummerconference.org. We hope you enjoyed this episode of 340B Insight. Please send your questions and ideas to podcast at 340bhealth.org. Thanks for listening and be well. Thanks for listening to 340B Insight. Subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, visit our website at 340bpodcast.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at 340B Health and submit a question or idea to the show by emailing us at podcast at 340bhealth.org.